Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and a huge episode today, Todd Sampson is back. Uh, Todd was the very first guest on Willosophy and a lot of what he did on that very first episode shaped what this show would become. So it was so excited to have him back almost seven years after we did that first show. And look, it gets a little indulgent at the top of the show as I reflect on that and what the show has become. And uh, that's really just because I wanted to acknowledge the role that Todd played in shaping what the show became uh, by the way that he answered those questions and was so generous in that first episode. If you've never heard it, um, I would recommend you go back and listen to the first one before you listen to this one because there are a few things that Todd references in this episode that come directly out of that first episode that we did together. Uh, so go back, listen to the first episode, then come back, listen to this episode with Todd Sampson. Todd and I also do a television show together. It's called Gruen. It is back on October 14 on ABC TV and iView. Uh, if you are not in Australia, but maybe you have a VPN, ExpressVPN, uh, go to ExpressVPN, put in the code TOFOP for three months uh, free when you subscribe and uh, um, you can watch it obviously set your little uh, dial then to Australia and you can watch it on ABC iView so I do recommend doing that if you want to watch uh, Gruen when it is on in Australia it's going to be a bit a pretty historic year for the show as everybody has noticed the world has changed a little uh, the way we do the show is going to have changed a little and uh, we're very excited about it. We're very excited about all the new things we'll have to talk about and just doing something a little bit different always sparks your brains in a new and unusual and intriguing way. So that is Gruen. It is back October 14. Please make sure that you check that out. And Todd, of course, has another show called Body Hack which I think has just currently wrapped its latest season, but you can catch that in all various different places around the world. So I highly recommend checking out Body Hack. Uh, I have a Patreon page, as you know. I've been plugging it a lot of late. We are trying to get to $5,000 in contributions per month. That's the budget we've come up with where we can afford to do two episodes a week. A brand new one with a brand new guest on a Monday will be the plan. And then a catch-up episode on a Friday with a previous guest, uh, of course, a day earlier for Patreon subscribers and ad-free. So... Uh, at the moment, we haven't quite made it to the 5,000 yet. I have been doing a couple of uh, weeks where it has been two episodes a week, but until it's up to the 5,000 now, we're back to one episode per week, which means that this catch episode is actually coming out at the start of the week. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. You don't need to know all that. But when we get to the 5,000, we will go back to two episodes per week. But in the meantime, uh, just the one episode out per week at the moment on a Sunday for Patreon subscribers and on a Monday for everybody else. So that is this one this week. It is with Todd Sampson. He is an incredibly fascinating guy. And this interview goes to some pretty surprising places. So I really hope that you enjoy how generous Todd was with his time. Uh, thank you very much for listening and hope you're well. I'll talk to you again soon. And welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And today we take a journey back in time to 
the very humble beginnings of the show that you are listening to and that so many of you listen to now. Uh, it was a bit of a journey to get to this point, but uh, obviously we're in a position now where often we're doing two new episodes of the show per week, which is something that I could never have imagined in the first four or five years where it took me four or five years to get to 50 episodes. We'll probably do 70 or 80 this year and we're aiming to do you know, 100 plus episodes next year. So uh, thank you to everybody who supports the show on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash philosophy. But this is where it all started. It all started in an office out the back of my house with an idea in my head about what it is that I wanted to do and this is what it has become. Uh, And it started because a friend of mine uh, just said yes just said yes when I said, hey, can you come over to my house and uh, record something with me? I never imagined back then that, you know, that show would end up being something they reviewed in the New York Times or that Apple named one of its you know best podcasts of the year or that would have like millions of listeners per year. I didn't know anything of what the show was but I think that so much of what the show is it is unusual for me guests by the way to uh, sing the praises of my own podcast in the introduction but I'm doing it for the purposes of context uh, for who I'm about to introduce because I never imagined that it would be any of those things when we first sat down to chat and you certainly couldn't have imagined that it would have been any of those things when we sat down to chat so uh, back then I did not even start the podcast in the same way this is how I now start the episodes of this show. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Todd Sampson, and I guess uh, I'm the first guest. You are patient zero. Am I patient yeah. zero? <laughs> that patient has now been identified. You are the person in the Wuhan podcasting market <laughs> <laughs> so where all this started. And yet we're back here, like quite magnificently really considering the year that we've had this show that is now almost entirely online i am almost entirely not in the same room with the person when i'm recording this podcast but tonight serendipitously um you know we happen to be in the same place and we're in a state where it's acceptable for two people to be in Mm. the same room and have a conversation and so we are back in well not in the same room because we actually recorded it in the room that is next to this room oh, in my office we? oh yes behind that uh, book oh, yes. bookshelf there there's yeah. a little space in there which is now the storage room but <laughs> previously it was the podcasting room and now it's just moved out into the main part of the office i don't actually get up from my normal desk now to do the podcast it was way, is, way so too it much has, effort it, it, it is it is upgraded though isn't it like yes. this is a bigger space this because i remember we could have done this virtually, but I thought it'd be appropriate to do it live. And I haven't seen you for a while and we're about to film. So I thought, let's just get together. But this is, uh, there was something about the other space that I liked as well. We were like right next to each other. We were pretty crammed into the room and yeah. and that It was, was non-COVID safe was though, that room. Safe. It was very much in each other's face here. I've got the door open, mm. you know, you can breathe fresh air. Apart from me smoking, you can breathe fresh air. <laughs> it's fine. It does, it does feel like a, a return to the start. So I apologize if that introduction was overly sentimental, dear listener. But I wanted to start with that because w- what did you think it was when I said, can you come over to my house? Because I think that the way that people still talk to me about that episode of the show, and I think of so much of what you brought to the table ended up setting an agenda for what 
the show became, you know, because you were my first guest and you responded and opened yourself up and answered in such a way that a lot of the things that the tropes that were initially started in that conversation continue to be tropes of the podcast. So what did you think you were getting yourself in for? I didn't know, uh, but it was a friend who asked me to come on and uh, onto his podcast that he was starting. And I said, okay, fine. And when, but when it started, I didn't know that it was going to become so deep. I didn't pick that. I thought it was not, not, you're not the person anyway who goes superficial. I knew that, but I didn't think it would go as deep as it did. And uh, I also got a lot of feedback from that show. And it was the first time, because I try to avoid anything in the public, anything in the media outside of me being on television. So when the shows are on air, I'll, I'll do it. That was an exception that I did. And it's probably the first time that I opened up as much as I did. And it became a problem for me because a lot of people listen to it. And in fact, I just did, I recently did um, Brush With Fame. And he completely caught me off guard because he had he had listened to the podcast and he knew things that I, cause I stuff I said to you I'd never said in public before. And so he completely caught me off guard because I, I was like, how do you know that? I know how he knows it from the first episode I did with you. And I mean, well, even now I have James Fosdyke who does an image of the guest. You were before James Fosdyke did the image of the so guest. Am so am I going to get one of those images? Yes, you will. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. I'm going back. I'm I'm yeah. a completist. You know this, yeah, Todd. I've identified right. everybody who doesn't have an image and they're definitely yeah. going to be repeat uh, people on the podcast if I can get them. And really what I'm hearing now that I say all that out loud is Arn ripped off Brush With Fame from Bay. Because clearly I was he doing did. an interview. He did. Providing somebody with a portrait. That's totally right. <laughs> he just cut out the middleman. Yeah. He doesn't have to pay James Fosdyke. So... Um, you did open up a lot and I genuinely appreciated that. And perhaps um, I'm interested in asking you the question, if you were doing the show for the first time now, a show that now, you know, has a history of people opening up about things and sometimes even those things getting into the press, you know, there are guests who come on this show and say things that end up being media stories. Hmm. If the show had been that now, as opposed to you just coming over to my place to do something you didn't know about, do you think you would have been as open? With you, yes. But in general, I wouldn't have been. And I probably wouldn't have been that open with Brush With Fame if it wasn't for your podcast. Because most people, even though I'm in the public eye quite a lot, most people have no idea who, where I come from, or there's all these assumptions, especially working in the advertising business. It is its own brand around you. Uh, but because of your show, uh, yeah, it, it opened up other avenues. Now, with that said, I've only done ever in the last 10 years, I've only done two podcasts, yours and one other. And I'm just breaking through my mind because not that I was scarred by yours, but it, I just, I felt, I felt like I had done it. You know, I felt like I had explained a lot of my own story. And for those that are interested, they heard it and I didn't want to keep doing it. And I saw, I have never done podcast rounds or I've never done multiple shows or anything like that. So maybe now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I was slightly scarred from the experience and I said, no more, I'm not doing that anymore. And then when you called me again and said, should we do a, should we do a catch up? I'm going through people, you know, that I mean, have been on and it's been seven years. 
I think that's time, right? It's been seven years. Uh, my friend uh, Adam Spencer, who uh, you know is a previous guest on this podcast, obviously, and I did uh, you know years of breakfast radio with him at Triple J, and he won't mind me telling this story, I'm sure. Um, in fact, he may have even told it on the podcast because it was one of the funniest stories that both of us shared in the time that we worked together, which was that he went through a string of relationships where once the woman had finished it with him, the next relationship they went into was a same-sex relationship and it became like a lasting relationship. And he was speculating on what that meant, you know, the fact that there'd been five in a row and that had just been, you know, what it really means is probably coincidence. But just but for the sake of the argument, what does it say about him that each of those people went into same-sex relationships and were happy for ever after? And the, my favorite bit of the story was that he was talking to a girlfriend and Adam's theory was that, well, once you've climbed Mount Everest, you know, you don't have to climb anymore. Mm. And she said, yeah, but you don't have to take up caving. <laughs> so. <laughs> so true. But this show, this show and, the, and what you do on the show is as much about you as it is about your guests. Like, mm. And for a lot of people. Who, Too much so for some people. <laughs> but most people who, oh, again, I think that you're, you're well-known and not well-known, you know, because you're quite a private person and you've got quite an interesting life. But that, most people would know you from comedy. Do you think it is unfair? This is something that I think about a lot. Um, so, so some people contact me and they're like, I, I would love a philosophy episode where somebody interviews you for the episode. And two things about that. One is, I think that you do get a sense of me. I do. It, this is a conversation. This is not a straight interview. It never has been. And it is certainly, if you're coming to this for autobiographical details of somebody's life that you could read off their Wikipedia page or see in other interviews. This is not the place. I like to have a conversation with people. And if we like, if, if we're talking about stuff that you could already find out, I feel like I've failed in a way with the show. But secondly, I am, as you know, incredibly private about you know, various aspects of my life. And yet I ask people about those private aspects of their life. Do you think that that is unfair, that I, I myself am intensely private and would not like to answer those questions, but I am quite happy to ask them of other people? Yeah, I have another show that I'm going to do in the future that I'm planning on, and I'm going to ask you to go on it. You're going to say no. I know you're going to say no, and it may take some convincing, but maybe if I do your show twice. I say yes a lot more these days, I think the, the assumption with you is it would be, I think the, I'm guessing the assumption would be you would say no to pretty much anything that gets personal with you. I mean, I know a bit of your life because I've been with you for 11 years. So that's longer. Like I'm with you a lot and we talk about things, but I get the need to be private. And I, and maybe will, maybe that adds to the mystique of Will Anderson, not knowing, not knowing what you are really about I think people know kind of what you're about but I don't think they know you they know part of what I'm yes. about like I do think that there are the thing that I'm always would say is I'm less private than protective like I don't yeah, like fair. to talk about parts of my life that impact other people who haven't willingly signed up to this I'm quite open about things that 
are only about me, you know, that you're only learning something embarrassing or insightful or challenging about mm. me. I'm happy to have those conversations, but if they impact other people, and I actually hope I was only half joking, I guess, when I asked you that question, because I hope that that's the way that I interview. Mm. I hope I interview in a way that I allow people the space to say what it is that they want to say. But if I get the sense that somebody does not want to talk about something I've brought up, mm. I am very happy to quickly move on to something else they do want to talk about. And also we do offer people, and I'm very happy to say this on this show, the opportunity to edit things out. There have been occasions over the years where somebody has said something on the show that they later thought they did not want on the show. And in every case, we have always taken that thing out of the show because I, I, I don't want people to be put in a situation where you know, they reveal something or talk about something that they don't want to talk about. So I, I know you don't agree with me with the privacy thing, but I've always felt that if you make your money from the public, then the public become your shareholders. And I'm not saying this for everyone, but I then feel somewhat some bit of responsibility not to be a role model, because I am not a role model, uh, but to, if you have something to say that could potentially help someone else or make them think differently about their lives or l let them feel that they're not alone in that struggle, then I, I feel an obligation to do that, an unpaid obligation to do that. Because, I mean, I don't make all my money from the public, but when you do, there is a contract. Whether you like that, I know you and I don't agree on this because you're quite private. I know a lot of people famous like you who say, fuck that. I give you what I give you, whatever. I'm a comedian. I give you that and you get nothing else. I don't know. I feel there's something more there. I don't, I think there is somewhat of a contract. Like I do think that, so for, I'll give you a really practical example. The, the other day, so one of the things that I say, if people sign up to the Patreon page is that I will respond to every person who messages. But what I cannot do is respond to everybody every time they message. So yes. if you're someone, I have about enough time to be able to like, it's a manageable number that I'll try to give someone a, you know, an actual response to their question or their comment, you know, and, and, and think about it and respond honestly to them. But if it becomes an ongoing dialogue, I do actually just have other things that I need to do in my life. I feel like, those people have paid for the podcast. They're supporting it. You know, there's a whole bunch of people who listen and that's fine. They get it for free. But the, these are the people who have invested more. They feel like shareholders in the podcast, even if they contribute a dollar a month, they're still, you know, yeah. a shareholder in the podcast. So what I feel like I owe them is like, you know, the annual report, you know, yes. the, but yes. I don't necessarily owe, you know, the shareholders of it. They get the podcast and they get the annual report what I can't be doing is you calling every night to you know, tell you how things went in yeah. the factory. And I that get time. that as well. You know? <laughs> I, it's like, and also delivering advice. I mean, I'm, I'm not, we're not paid professionals for a lot of things and we can only speak from our own experience, but that's what I find happens is they'll hear something and then they want advice. And it's like, you know, I can give you what happened to me, but I can't give you advice on what you should do next, especially if it's, something serious, you know, if it's something that could potentially be physically or emotionally damaging. I'm actually fascinated by that idea, what you've just brought up there, because I think that I would like to write an advice book about how 
I'm not qualified to give anyone advice <laughs> and how that most people who write advice books or are giving advice aren't qualified to like this new phrase that has popped up with the QAnon movement, you know, the do your own research, which I'm trying to start. Don't do your own research because you're not qualified to do the fucking research. Right. Like you are a person who thinks very deeply about, you know, how our brains work, how our minds work, how our society forms. Let's, start with where we're at because what I would like to think at the moment is that the house has been knocked down (laughs) and we have an opportunity to rebuild the house and there are those who will want us to rebuild the house exactly as the house was before let's get back to normal we had a house the house went away let's rebuild that house and then there will be a conversation around could we build the house better when we rebuild the house, could we get rid of some of that, you know, structural inequality that was built into the house? Could we put some solar panels on the house? That's my optimistic view of the opportunity that we've found mm. ourselves in. But what's your view of where we're at? Because we're obviously at a very pivotal moment in our history, in our humanity. Well, I mean, maybe you don't even agree with that. Like, tell me how you feel about the circumstance we've found ourselves in. Well, my philosophical view is that we, and this is what I spent the last five, six years exploring with these unique cultures around the world in body hack, is that humans are remarkably adaptable. We are incredibly adaptable. Uh, and And sometimes that we're forced to adapt. And that can be anything. It can be in our personal lives. It could be a death. It could be an addiction. It could be some kind of major struggle. But sometimes the whole system gets shocked with a virus. And in this case, that virus, which is almost literal, is is COVID. And it tests mindsets. Because if your mindset is... If you are an optimist in any shape or form, then you can see somewhat to the distance and you feel okay and it's a unique time. If you're not, that virus can hit your system and knock you back forever. But in in my case, I see it as forced adaptation. It's just forced me to adapt my life, to make change, to and I am, although I see myself as a pessimist, I am an optimist. So I, I see it as it will come right, but not back to what it was. And so I see this time, and I understand the financial struggles and everything, but I see this time as a as a unique time to adapt to the environment around you. I I that's how I choose to see it. Yeah. So that's what you say is choice. And I've been through a real gamut of emotions on that, you know, during this time. And people who listen to the show regularly have heard, you know, various stages of that where I have been terrified about the thing that I love the most being gone forever. You know, I've, I'm in a very lucky position, a privileged position compared to so many people. But, you know, like everybody, you know, when your job goes away, there are financial ramifications of that on your life and Mm. that can be incredibly stressful. Um, The ongoing implications for those who are most disadvantaged in our society in a broader sense, like plus the, you know, ongoing currently but only going to get worse situation i believe that we've got going with climate change there's a lot of negative emotion that's another virus yeah negative emotion around where we are as a humanity and what this means for us all but i think of late i really feel like my mindset has now come to 
yes, it is terrible that all these things have happened and we should no, in no way diminish or not look after those who have been most disadvantaged by mm. what we're going through. But we also now have to work out what comes next. Yes. And we have a very unique opportunity where a lot of the things that we held to be unassailably true have been revealed to be not necessary or you know, you know, not needed in the ways that – or just are impossible to do. They might still be needed or necessary, but they're made impossible by the nature of the virus that we need to adapt. So talk to me about when you say, I choose to think about, you know, the opportunity that is out of this. Is that something that you immediately came to that choice or was it a process of like, you know, grief and mourning, you know, to get to where you got to? Well, it started bizarrely for me. So I was, I was in, I was filming in Rio de Janeiro the fourth episode of, yes, of Body, Body Hack, Hack, which never got made. And I was filming Samba in the favelas, and the favelas are the slums of Rio, basically. And... Uh, and inc- well, so that undersells it, though, because the favelas, and I'd love your insight in this, obviously, I've never been, I only know by reputation, but notoriously, you know, one of the most dangerous parts yes. of the world. So explain to me a little bit more detail about the favelas themselves. So I, so favelas are, I guess they can be referred to as slums, but they're basically run by drug lords. And the way it goes there, I was filming there, right? So the way it goes is if the drug lord allows you in, and often that involves cash exchanging hands and lots of different things, you're totally fine. You're totally fine. If you go in somehow and it's not legit with the head guy, you're not totally fine at all. And they are rabbit warns. They live on top of each other. Hundreds of thousands of people stacked really close together. In And they're built so that the police cannot ram them. So they're on hills. I was in one called Vidigal, which is stunning. It is on overlooks all of Rio. It's the most beautiful real estate you could imagine in one of the poorest areas. And I was with uh, a retired, but one of the kingpins who was an axe murderer. So he carried an axe. That was his thing. He carried an axe on his shoulder and he enforced with the axe. And he went to jail for 18 years. And he was my person that I was there with. And there was a funny moment, right? Do, okay, wait, wait, wait yeah. there's a funny moment where, so I'm there with him and I'm nervous to meet him because everyone warned me. And, you know, it's like, don't, you know, it's one of those situations where they say, be careful what you say to him. And you're like, well, I don't, what, what do you mean? Like, what's, what's not, I don't know what's within the boundaries, right. you know? And so I meet this guy and I'm super nervous and, and, uh, yeah. So he went to jail for murder, many multiple murders and he is my host and we're kite flying. They do kite flying where kites have, um, glass on them and they fight above the favelas so you see these kites flying and they attack each other they're like it's like a competition so instead of them killing each other on the ground they kite fight so i'm with this guy and he wants to take me to his house and it was it was a funny moment where uh we couldn't get in so in my former criminal youth i said i can get into your house and he said oh what do you mean i said well i'll climb up over the side as a climber and i'll drop so i climbed up onto the edge of his house and i dropped down he's on the outside i'm on the inside the guys are filming thinking oh fuck i have this screwdriver and i snap open his door 
and we go into his house. And, and he says, this is not my house. <laughs> oh, hang on, shit. I was there and we're on the roof and we're overlooking Rio and I'm thinking, oh, fuck, is this his house? Like, shit, did I just break into someone's house? I made but, a great prank to play on a visiting film crew from another country. <laughs> so he says, he says to me, so I ask him and I, I say, you know, what did you do with the axe? That's my way of easing into it. Right. You know? small, and he just, small talk. And I know he likes axes. I know, so. exactly. And I, he had these um, wild eyes. Uh, and he kind of, he looked at me and he said, he, I, I can't remember the exact response, but it was something like, not much was his response. And uh, we were walking out then after filming there with him. We were walking out and people were walking past us and they were going, COVID, COVID. <clears throat> To us and I and this is before COVID hit and I was in Rio I didn't even know it was going off everywhere around the world and he then goes leaves us for a bit and we're just standing on the kind of corner and then he comes back and he he tells he says basically uh we've been you need to leave and not come back because they've now deemed you as a film crew too dangerous to be in the favelas because these white guys are probably carrying COVID. And that was the beginning of my COVID journey. And then I was like, what's happening? And then we contacted overseas and then it all went crazy. And then COVID spread everywhere and Rio wasn't doing well with it. And then DFAT said, if these people don't get out of Rio now, then they may never get out. And as you know, we would have been there for eight months because Rio is in a terrible shape and it was all closed. And so that was the beginning. So it was an adventurous beginning for me of COVID. Like it all started in a crazy, unexpected way. And I imagine that you're focusing, I mean, I, you know, not similar at all, but the fact that obviously the Melbourne Comedy Festival was one of the first things that got cancelled. We were all in Adelaide together doing shows when we found out. The first part of it's all problem solving. Hmm. You know, what are we going to do now? How am I going to do this? You were doing that on a grander scale, which well, is it was disbelief. How, we, how are we, I can't believe this is happening. We have to get back to Australia. You know, you're not really thinking about it on a, uh, in a global sense or what the ramifications, are. you don't even know at that stage how long it's going to go for or what level of shutdown. No, and I, I thought at the time being so isolated, I thought at the time, well, this is like, it's not going to blow out as big as it blew out. And then I came back and went into isolation. And that, that was the beginning of my, my COVID journey. And of course, it all goes crazy from there. And then I was trapped back here and then, you know, life changes. And, and that film never got made. So all that money, all that time, that never got made. We just, we, the, the fact that the drug lords thought we were too dangerous to be in a favela was such a twist. It was like completely bizarre situation i was i in. mean it feels to me like you've got enough for a short film like you know it feels to me even you just climbing into that that guy's house we got all that and then you guys having to flee that's that's almost but you enough. know what we did you know what we, we should have done what? is we didn't we didn't film the fleeing right because what basically happened is the crew were like fuck this camera's down we're out of here and everyone stopped filming and no one would really like the focus was fully on getting out. And we, we took the last commercial flight out of Rio. So we literally just got out. And so I, 
you're right. If we would have had enough awareness to go, hey, let's film what's happening here. But, you know, we filmed all that stuff of me breaking into his house and us upstairs and the axe conversation. I mean, it would have been the greatest ever body hack if you decided to stay. <laughs> if, if you just spent eight months, eight months in, in Rio. Yeah, the third worst country on the planet for COVID. That living in the favelas with some drug lords. That is a compelling episode of television. Do you know what was strange about, about it, though, is that, you know, the show is, is not about judging people you're with. Yep. It's not also about condoning it, but it's, it's about accepting the situation you're in. When you're there in their world and you're listening to them and you're seeing, we were there during a police raid and they came in and their guns are blazing. I, it's so easy to take sides and say the police are good and they're trying to uphold the law and these drug lords are bad. It's not that simple. It's not that, you know, in some ways it's the Gaza situation is a terrible analogy, but it's not that clean cut what's going on there. And the problem with COVID in a place like that or in Africa or in places where the living is so dense is once it happens, it's wildfire. It just goes everywhere. They, they don't have the option of, sep- I mean, they can't do three meters. I mean, it's, they're on top of each other. You talked to me about the idea of the show being not necessarily about condoning but also not necessarily about immediately judging. Yes. I mean, but you can't go into the scenarios and show people what you've shown people mm. without taking part in it, without mm. under, trying to understand what that culture is, at least in the moment without judgment, you know, yeah. in an operational sense, without judgment, you know. So, But you can, you can hold your judgment back. And you can. I was going to say. So, talk to me about that idea of because sometimes you are with people, hmm. you know, who are unpleasant people, or they are at least doing things that are unpleasant yeah. to our, you know, the way that we view life. I went to film Voodoo in Benin, West Africa, and as a non-religious person, I went there with a huge amount of skepticism. Like, you know, there's there's trance involved. There's all kinds of possession, lots of things, and it was interesting because. I do have a negative filter when it comes to religion. You know, I, I, I just, there's a mindlessness about it that gets me, you know, like that there's, I just wish there was a lower level switch where you'd go, okay, put the religion aside now. Let's just deal with each other as humans. And I went there with voodoo going as if, you know what I mean? Like this is, I'm not going to be possessed. I'm not going to go into trance. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. And I remember there was one stage towards the end where, I was on my knees, naked, with a little thing wrapped around me. And there's a voodoo priestess and two other voodoo doctors. And I'm on my knees and they had just washed me, which was bizarre, including my groin. And then they killed six animals above my head, bled, bled them on me until I was completely covered. And they were like, you know, and in that moment, I'm thinking, what the... And it was, I closed my eyes and... I could just feel the warmth of the blood. I could, the smell was bad and the screaming of the animal was bad. And as a vegetarian, it's not that easy for me to be in that situation, but I just didn't, it's, I, I chose to go there. <laughs> I chose to experience it. I can't now say, actually the real stuff, I don't want to experience that. So I'm, I got my eyes closed and they're bleeding it. And I had felt, I had felt so good. And they, the guy's translating saying, wash your face in it. And I'm washing my face in the, the animal blood. And it's so warm and it's dripping down my body. And they're 
singing and doing their thing around me. And I still had my eyes closed. So in some ways it was meditative. I was, it was very introspective. I was like, it was meditation, really. I had my eyes closed. I was like feeling that moment. And then I opened my eyes and I saw the look of horror on my crew's face, what they had experienced. It wasn't what I had experienced. It was completely different than we had two different worlds here. And they could not understand my response that it was a, one of the more beautiful moments of my life. They, they were like, they just saw horror. And again, it just reminded me that what we see, what they see as normal, we see as appalling. But that doesn't, that's our filter. That's our filter over what that is. And you, sure, you could say, oh, they don't need to kill animals. They don't need to do all that. It's, it's archaic. And yeah, that's all true. But that's their system. They've been doing it for 6,000 years. You know, so it was one of those moments where I go, I wanted to judge. <laughs> like, what the, what the hell is going on with me? And I was in such a state where I, I, I didn't want to like it. But I did. So when you choose to put yourself in this situation, because that's what you said. I, I chose this, you mm. know. It, it, it wasn't like it was a, a surprise on the running sheet that like, no. the voodoo series. No, no, wait was. now, wait now. That was a fucking surprise. <laughs> I remember I said to Jeff, who's my creative partner, he's a director and he shoots as well. And I said, what are we doing now? And he said, oh, maybe it's best you don't know this oh, time. Okay, yeah. So I didn't quite yeah. know what was going down. And that happens a lot in my show. Like sometimes I'll say to Jeff, what's happening now? And he will say, do you want to know? I think you sh you'd be better if you don't know. And then often I choose not to know just so it's real in the moment. And I, you know, if I want to say, don't do this, you know, I can say that, but I didn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, fuck. And then I watched the film and I'm like, oh boy, geez. Okay. How are these communities? Because I think this is uh, like, would be, they are also having, you are doing something that changes you mm. and changes the people who watch the show, hopefully in some way. Mm. But it also changes the people who are the participants in the show. You're going into their favela. You're going into their community and taking part in this traditional voodoo ceremony. So, like, is, how how is that communication made? Like, what is their understanding of what is happening when you go to these places? It varies. It varies. Sometimes they get it completely because they ha have had people film it before. And sometimes they have no idea. They're just going, they're getting paid or they're getting some kind of exchange out of this. So they're just willing to do it. And then that's when the responsibility always sits with the creator to make sure that you are not sensationalizing or passing judgment. And sometimes I regret, like when we went to in Siberia or in Africa and you're at these super remote tribes and you're thinking the story's a good one to tell, but we are now opening them up. Now, you could argue that you're logging it, a piece of history, but I also feel sometimes that it's like the West. It's like space. I would love to go to space, but I don't want humans to go live in space. I mean, fuck, do we have to fuck everything up? And sometimes I feel that way about filmmaking. I'm like, did we really need to show how amazing their culture is? Because now we're going to have 10 German tourists next year go there with cameras. And, you know, so I, I go through that. Face. But the, the point I want to make with that story, though, is 
is and just as it relates to COVID, is community. What I found is the most interesting cultures have excellent sense of community and and belonging, not so much individualism. And I realized in my own life that I'm a bit of a introvert and a loner and don't spend a lot of time with people. And I don't know my neighbors and I don't have a community of people around me. I don't have a massive amount of friends. I don't have all of that. And and when COVID happens, for a lot of people, they lose their communities that do have that. They lose it. And they're lost in this kind of individualistic life, you know, or isolation. And I hope if COVID does one thing is, is that it, it just reminds us the importance of community. You know, like all I, I, I just want to hug, I'm a hugger, you know, like you just want to hug people and that your friends, I mean, we hugged, but we're both hopefully clean. Maybe. Well, uh, also but, we're about to fucking do 10 weeks of show together, s- sitting yeah. next to each other on the show at a socially appropriate distance way. But I figure you're in my groom. I'm bubble. in your bubble. We're in a bubble. Yes. We're in a little groom bubble. But I think Russell's not in the bubble. Unfortunately, Russell no. has to stay in, He's got his own bubble. in his own bubble. <laughs> we're not allowed in his bubble. He's got a special bubble. Yeah. But the, the point I was making is about community and family and that's been what I've been trying to do differently. And it's weird, right? Because it's at a time when I'm not allowed to get close to people. That's part of the reason I came to you, to see you face to face. I now realize more and more, and I've, I lost my mom and uh, this year as well. And I realized how introverted I am and how if it's up to me, every day is COVID. I'd stay at home. I don't go out. I don't go to parties. I don't go to events. I don't do any of that stuff. And COVID has taught me the importance of that. The irony being, I can't do it now. But now I feel its importance. Is it? And, you know, it's like before COVID, the best thing in the world was canceled plans, right? Yes. Whereas, do you think that there was that, because it was available all the time to do things, our appreciation of, doing those things was diminished by you didn't need you didn't actually end up going out to that restaurant or that bar because you knew you could yeah so you didn't where now suddenly those things have been taken away yeah, and you're I, like, mean, I value that That's the thought important. of sitting in a cinema with a whole bunch of people seems super attractive now where before it was as a given you know or being around going to an i, I don't know i i think i think community is so or belonging, maybe community is the wrong word, but belonging is so important. And COVID has shown us what happens when that stops. I think there's been a real sense of, yeah, so the community has obviously been very important in regard to something that is transmissible. We need to be able to track communities and understand what communities are doing mm. on the level that people had an appreciation of that restaurant at the end of my street that I'm now getting my takeaway meal from. I'm not just buying a takeaway meal. I'm supporting that local business. Yeah. So it's still going to be around. And yet at the other end of that, if we talk about it in a you know, consumerism sense, you know, you have that connection buying from your local shop and you're reminded of that. But at the same time, we've been forced in this situation where a lot of shopping has been global in the sense of it's been online, it's being delivered to you contactless. We're not having that interaction with, you know, communities in the way that we used to. So it's had been a bit of a, you know, some some of it's been really remarkable about the idea of what community is. Yeah, on one level, it's bonded all of us. Incredibly. It's the same fight. 
You know, we're all, we, we now all have a similar enemy. Regardless of your race, regardless of your age, regardless of your wealth, we, we, we all so have a similar where's answer. your opinion about, because I spoke to Ben Lee and we were talking about the idea that he was, you know, unwittingly linked to this pandemic because his song We're All In This Together became a bit of a rallying cry for the entire world. It was, you know, the go-to advertising jingle. It mm. was, you know, it was the saying that came out of every leader and politician and TV celebrity's mouth, we're all in this together. Mm. And yet we're not. And we have, we're not in it equally. And well, we're not in it equally. So we're yes. in it together, but we're not in yes. it equally. Is that what you would say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's l- less. It's for me. It's just. I can only speak from my own personal experience. It's just reminded me of the importance of, of being with other people. But I could go, the next twenty years of my life, and not, and be alone with others. But COVID has reminded me of the importance of that. And there's a, you know, there is a weird irony to that because we can't be within three meters of each other. You know, we can't, it's difficult to connect. But now I feel the need to connect more. It could be also other changes in my life that happened in parallel to this. Uh, but that's, that's what COVID's done to me. It's pulled the introvert slightly out of the shell. Why do you think, because I'm introverted, no, absolutely no doubt. I have a few very close friends and then I have a range of, you know, very fun acquaintances. Like I would have, I have this like, you know, very small group of very tight friends and then like a really large group of, you know, people that I am friendly with and I know. So I feel very socially, you know, supported and that I have, you know, various communities and all these things. But I am like you, that I'm very much happy in my own company and, and won't go out of my way necessarily to connect with people. That's part of the podcast. The podcast is probably an excuse to have the conversations that I should be having. But I'm like, oh, fuck it. Let's yeah, uh, we let's record, record them and see yeah, if we can exactly. monetize them. Want to catch up with yeah. mics? Occasionally I'm, I'm talking to my interesting friends and they say something really interesting and I'm like, you know what? That was just wasted on me. <laughs> You should be saying that to some people that I arranged to listen to it. So where does that come from, do you think? I, I think that I have, I've had attachment issues growing up. Growing up with a mom who has addiction issues and who, who struggled, or, and I was very close to her. And I think I learned when I was younger not to attach. Like, detachment is the way is was my coping mechanism as a child and i just brought that into adulthood that's that's and so i struggle to get close to people i just i i i it's just fear you know of of and i and you know and from the last part i've had quite a few friends killed right. and and you know uh, one of the murder and 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 people it seems like the people i generally people I get close to i end up there's some kind of bad separation that happens. And uh, so I, I just have detachment issues. I just, my strategy as a child was to detach, not attach. And my coping mech, that has been a successful coping mechanism with a, a mom dealing with addiction. And that got me through my childhood and became a, a, a cornerstone of my adulthood. And I, in some ways, COVID has shaken that. And mom dying, but COVID has shaken that a little bit for me. So what's that process like for you? Because you you seem, at least externally, quite analytical about the way that you approach, you know, any sort of problem, really. Mm. Like, you know, you 
you, you see what other people's experiences have been. You collate some data. You fucking put yourself through the experiment. Like that. Yeah. That, is, that seems to be you, your sort of motif about how you approach life. But what you're talking about is there. Like, how do you approach this idea that you're saying, I, perhaps I should be, other human beings are important to my world and to my story. How, how is it as simple as when Will says, let's do the podcast, I say, let's do it in partly. person together, or is it more complicated than that? No, it's, that's partly it. It's action. It's doing something. It, it's, it's being aware that I don't attach easily and make an effort. That's, it's a bit of that, but you know, it's. Being analytical, it's funny because I do all these shows where I take risks. And so your childhood strategies can serve you well in different aspects. It certainly serves you well when you go into a corporate career because in some ways you need to shut off a lot of that. So it's a skill that's, you know, mom trained me well, although she had no education, but she trained me well for corporate life. Yeah. The in, capacity in to detach from... Detach from situations where, yeah. you know, I remember once I had not, to... Like, I had not to, a capacity I have. Like I... I know. I ride the emotions of work situations in a way that I think I'm getting better at it as I get older, but I am certainly not that person. My, capa- my capacity to detach from situations is, is probably the opposite of yours. But it, for me, it's it's... It's riskier to open up and be close to someone. It's, that's riskier for me than standing in front of an AK-47 that's underwater or going to the protests in Gaza. And so I can, in those situations, I have the ability to detach. I have the ability to focus. I have the ability, to, exactly what you said, to analytically look at the situation, weigh up the risk, weigh up the downsides, weigh up the escape routes, do all of that really quickly and then deal with that situation. I'm completely comfortable in that environment. But having coffee with a good friend and talking about myself, I have no problem having coffee with a good friend and then talking about them and what's going on in their lives. But me doing that, that to me is risky. I find I find a tremendous amount of risk in that. What's what's the risk? I mean, I know you've identified the cause of the behavior, hmm. but what's the actual risk? Like in your mind, I mean, you know, the in Todd Sampson's mind risk, because that's what we know it all is. It's just the things hmm. we create ourselves, the things that we decide are the risks of that situation. What is the risk that, you know, if you're sitting with somebody and you're sharing with them that comes with that? I think it's probably self-worth. Not thinking that you're worthy of that. See, it's that, not. It's not to do with. It's not to do with accolades. I've got lots of accolades. I've done. Heaps. You know what I mean. I've done lots of things. You, but you're I, externally super successful. Mm. So, like, and I don't think that's something people would associate with you. And by the way, like, you know that I know that the way that people perceive people is not necessarily yes. what they are like. Yes. But I imagine that people perceive you when they talk about you as someone who has mm. an unshakable level of like confidence and, you know, uh, about what it is they're doing. And I think people would be surprised to hear, you know, that there is that insecurity around not feeling like you 
have self-worth, particularly in a mm. situation where you're there with a friend. Now, like, I relate to that, by the way. I'm not that's not saying it as a judgment, but I think that people would see that's a discrepancy between how they perceive you to be and, and what you're saying. Yeah. Especially because being on television or climbing Mount Everest or, or being on a successful TV show or making money in the corporate world is branding. Right. It, it brands you and, and that's not bad. I'm not complaining about that, but it, it does. It brands you. you. You know, this like when you're in the public eye and people know you. And for example, if someone, like if I'm at the gym or whatever and, and I just go really introvert, that can easily be mistaken for what a dickhead. Like he's not very friendly. He's not very, it can be completely misinterpreted. And, and it happens a lot. I don't really care because I'm not, I'm not really that paying that much attention to that. But I know sometimes people will meet me and then I'll get to know them a little bit and they'll say, oh, geez, you're a lot friendlier than I thought you were going to be. I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah. What did you think I was? <laughs> I mean, you think I was a total fucking dickhead. I'm not looking at you. I'm not avoiding eye contact or or not, you know, avoiding you because I think I'm better than you. You know what I mean? That's not the, that's not what's happening here. But people don't know that. And, and fair enough. It's my own journey. It's my own inner journey. What is it that you want to be able to talk to people about like i always think it's most interesting and and this podcast for me is a journey of me discovering that as well Mm. what is it that i'm comfortable talking about you know we talked about that idea about me being private like this part of the conversation i'm having here and why i'm fascinated in what you're saying is that i think there is an incredibly damaging uh, discrepancy in society between how we present ourselves and how we're presented and what we're really like. You know, it manifests itself in social media with the presentation of perfect lives and people seeing those perfect lives and thinking that their life is not perfect in comparison. So mm. I, I like the fact that, you know, there's more to this because I think that there's more to everybody. Yeah. And I think that what our current world circumstances have reminded us is that there are things beyond someone's control that may be happening in their life that affects them on a day-to-day basis. What are the things that you aren't talking about that you would like to talk about? I don't about? think there are specific things, but I think loneliness is the real pandemic. And I think loneliness of is is affects so many things in your life and loneliness is not you're being physically alone you can be totally lonely with other people and i'm not gonna say woe is you know all men middle-aged men but i think men in general young and old uh struggle with those connections not everyone but in general i think that we're taught to be whatever the archetype of strong and together and 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 that whatever you know in charge or whatever that is and i don't think we're ever taught to be vulnerable to be open to to you know for things not to go well and for you to talk about that i don't think that's something that's consciously taught i think society the norms of society teach men to be strong and women to be nice and i don't think that's how it should be having children changes a lot of that for you you know when you when you for me at least when i became a father of two girls but so what's that idea what what you're touching on too is this misconception around you know toxic masculinity is a has become a catchphrase but mm. the, the conversation that often isn't part of it when we're trying to talk it to men about like we i think most people can get their head around how damaging it has been for women you yes. know male you know that that idea of what you know men were has not worked out for women very well mm. but 
I would make the argument that it's also not worked out for men that well. No. Or at least in a whole bunch of ways it hasn't worked out for men that well. There are so many men who are struggling with those exact same things that have been damaging to women have been damaging to the men who've been raised that way mm. or, you know, have been trying to go through life, you know, not really understanding the discrepancy between how they view the world and how they feel about the world and how they've been taught that they're meant to present themselves as feeling about the world. And I think the result of that is disconnection. Is just you just disconnect. You're not you don't really like I I see my wife with her friends and I'm like, wow, you guys really get into it. Like, right. holy, whoa, <laughs> I know. They whoa, really I wish do. I got into yeah. it that much. I mean, I probably, I don't wish, probably if I got into yeah. it, I wouldn't go there. But, but I'm, I was going to say, I don't wish I got into it that much, but we could have somewhere in between where we could be in a nice place. I, I think I lean towards loneliness. Uh, I think in my life, I'm not unique in that. I, 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 I do think it is a pandemic. You know, I think it is something a lot of people around the world share. And I don't, I'm not, I don't have any data to imply that it's more men than women, but I know from my own experience with men that it's a lot of men. Uh, and so it's, it's a struggle for me and COVID raises it, but it doesn't raise it in a negative way for me. It raises it in a way where I go, wow, like I, this forced isolation, I just have a different appreciation for togetherness now where I didn't even think about it. As you said, maybe it's because, maybe it's because I always had the opportunity, so therefore I can ignore it. But when you don't have the opportunity, you go, whoa, wait now, that's not healthy. It feels to me that the projects you've chosen, like have perhaps some of it was a little accidental at the start. Right. You know, you didn't necessarily know that you were going to end up yeah, going from the advertising world to being like no. on a very successful TV show that would then lead to opportunities to make your own TV shows. And then for them to be explorations of the body and the mind. But you've now done those things. Right. So you've had an opportunity now with the positions that you have in society, how you what you have done and understanding then what the opportunities for what you could do. Hmm. Does it make you, has there been anything in this time that has made you think, oh, that's the thing that I haven't done yet that I really would like to do? Uh, or does it make you think the opposite, which is I've got a, I, the thing that I'm looking to do isn't out there. It's maybe closer to home. Well, the, what's really impacted me has not much to do with my television projects, although I I view the documentaries that I make as important stories to tell to bring people together. And, and I think we understand ourselves better by understanding others. And when you and when you when I try and present cultures or societies or people that are very different to us to our, our lives, I think in some ways it helps us understand our lives and helps show that those differences in some cases are not that bad or that different. But probably the thing that has made me more aware and has given me a different purpose was mom dying. I think that because that was, a, was probably my first major like traumatic experience with you know someone who didn't want to live anymore who was who was uh, addicted to opioids and and alcohol and and was suffering from depression and suicide ideation and 
And I isolated myself from her as well, because that's how I do it. I isolate myself from everyone, my family, friends, like that's my protection. And in some ways, mom's life played out in front of me, not necessarily of where my life could lead, but a path, a, a, a path that I am probably genetically predisposed to go down. It doesn't mean I'm going to go down that because I, I believe, as we said in the beginning, choice. I believe that if you have enough awareness and time and you, you, you there is an element of choice in everything. But that changed me. That made me think, and I mean, you're part of that story, you know, when, when mom, when mom, you know, tried to OD last year, was it, it was, uh, yeah, it was last year. Last we were doing grown. Yeah. We were so doing it was, and you were the um, first person I phoned. Yeah. And cause I, cause I knew that you would understand it's a connection. I know, I knew that you would know what's going on with, I don't have to tell you much, but you would relate. And so for me, when I got the phone call, you know, from my sister saying she, you know, that I, whatever it was, she took 50 sleeping pills and three bottles of rum and tried to, you know, to end it on, on the, the sofa at home. And when Dion called me and said, can you come home? It was such a weird moment because... I was, it was weird that she asked as if there was a possible no as an answer. And then when she explained what had happened and, you know, that she was now in the hospital and I didn't think she was going to live much longer and she, you know. And my first response was, oh, fuck, I've got all these commitments here. You know, like I was like, oh shit, I'm in the middle of filming Grun and I, I just had this sort of, this need to run, you know, I wanted to flee from that situation. And again, she, she had been disassociated. She hadn't moved for a year. I hadn't been home in that time period, but she stayed in one spot in our house at the end of a sofa, most days with the lights out, alone, drinking and doing whatever she was doing my dad running around not knowing what to do and trying to help her and picking her up off the floor at night. He was not strong enough to lift her, so he would drag her. And he would tell me the stories where mom was lying there and the dog, uh, the, the cat, would climb onto mom and just lick her face while she's lying on the floor. And dad doesn't have the strength because he's too old to lift her. So he would just leave her, put a blanket on her, leave her on the floor. She had just passed out. And yet my sister asked me if I could come home. It was just bizarre. And so I phoned you straight away. And I said, I got to go, Will. And I got to go home. And, and I told you briefly what happened. And it is amazing because you were the first person I spoke to out loud about it. And this is the first time I said it out loud to someone who, other than my wife. You know, you were the first person I kind of said it out loud to. And somehow I knew you would, you would go, hey, man, I get it. You know, you, you, you need to do what you need to do. Don't worry. And you were really reassuring and you know and, and then I went home and that was an incredible journey so you, you imagine you think your mother's going to die by the time you get home and I race home and it's you know Canada's not close it's 26 hours of flying I, I live in the 
northeast of Canada in a place called Sydney, the Ark of Life. Uh, and I get there. And when I arrive, I don't want to go see my mother. I'm doing everything to delay it. And I'm talking to my sister and she's like, we need to, we need to go now and see her. And I walked into the room. Remember, she has no idea, no idea that I'm coming home. She doesn't, she's out of it. She's kind of quasi comatose, like she's in and out of consciousness. She's not speaking. She's just lying on her back, looking straight up. And, and I'm the closest to her. That's a bit scary. I'm the closest to her. She sees me as like her, you know, and I walk into the room and she just turns her head when she hears my voice. And she, this is the, the only thing she said to me. She just said, I don't want to live anymore, Todd. No facial change, no expression change, not hello, not how did you get here, nothing. She just looked at me and said, I don't want to live anymore. And that experience is bigger than anything that I've ever done in film or like it really made me, it made me realize the end road of non-attachment. That's the end. That's where that goes in the end. And I look back at that and I think I could have helped her. You know, I could have been more involved. I could have, you know, gone home more or I could have. And yet she isolated herself. I mean, she literally isolated herself like on a sofa in a room in a dark house. That's, that's that level of isolation to the point where she couldn't move anymore. And that's made me, now you add COVID onto that, that's made me rethink my issues with association and disassociation with people. Because that's the end road. Okay, so uh, firstly, it's, I mean, it's, I can imagine, of course, and I, so, the regular listeners to the show know that my grandmother died during COVID and um, that I grew up with my grandmother. She lived essentially on the same block, you know, on the same property that I've lived on for most of my life. Like the first 18 years of my life, I was adored by my uh, mum's parents. You know, there was my mum's parents and uh, I was the first son and, you know, just really was like my life as a kid was great because you know i had this like relentless love from these grandparents and you know i i don't live you know where they live anymore and you know i've seen her less and less and she was 97 she was like you know she'd had a good really good run it was time for her to you know go and she was ready you know none of that's when i saw her at christmas you know she was the one who was a bit like, this is going to be our last conversation. Whereas I was a bit like, no, 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 we're going to, I'm going to come back in March. And then by the time March happened, COVID happened and I couldn't go back. And then we were interstate and we couldn't go back at all. And I haven't been back since the, like they had a small funeral, you know, like, but um, you know, I haven't seen my, my mum or my family at all. I haven't got to hug my mum to say, I'm sorry that your mum died, you know, yet. Um, and so it's very natural, like, obviously, to just replay. Mm. I should have made more of an effort between Christmas and March. I should have, you know, I wish I had that final, you know, conversation or whatever. But, you know, like, you you were disassociated because 
you know, the disassociation hadn't been done from your side, but it was also protective, you know, yeah. like there is a point where you've got to also be good for the other people who rely on you in your life. Yes. And so. But there is, but, the, but well, there is, it's not a moral to the story, but there, there's a lot in making an effort to reach out to those that you know are struggling because their goal is to push you away. And it's not to take responsibility. I don't take responsibility for my mother's addiction. I don't take any responsibility for that. That's not, and and she's an adult. But as part of that community and that family, when you know, you know what's going on, but you are self-protecting. And I do think that's okay. But I do think it's also important to say, reach out. Like if you can now, if someone's struggling, reach out because it can make a big difference. Now I was 14,000 kilometers away and, and, and I've lived away since I was a kid. So I've, you know, I've, but a lot of that is running, you know, a lot of that is, is getting away, you know, and, and trying to live in your, another life. And, you know, I live a completely different life here than I lived back in Cape Breton with, you know, two working class parents. Which is partly what they wanted of you as well, though. Yes. You, you spoke about that the first time we ever spoke, you know, your dad showing the calluses on his hands yeah. and them saying to you, you don't want to grow up here. This is not the life that you want for yourself and that we want for you. So the fact that you had gone and created that life, I imagine, you know, made them incredibly proud. Yes. For, yes. You know. But still, I, I just think... I learned a lesson the hard way about the importance of, of being there for people in need that you know, you know on some level are in need and, and trying to overcome your own issues of attachment to that, you know, and your own fear of getting involved. And, you know, like it's, it's even... What, though, what about when you're in need? Do you have like people for when you're in need? Because... It's very easy to identify and be there for, or you know, provide solutions for those who are in need, even if they're not good solutions. At least you have some control over that situation. Here's what I could mm. have done. Here's the plan that I could have put into place. But do you show yourself that kindness? Do you have people that you can talk to about the things that are, like you know, about these things? Not so much. No, I, I tend to, as you pointed out, I I, I tend to go deep into self-help so i will train i'll physically be get myself strong the people say oh you look really fit generally if i'm really fit i'm dealing, I'm dealing with yeah. something uh, but, so i will do Man, things you look real so, good yeah wow you, you okay? look really good you must be totally <laughs> fucked but so i i i have learned and part of it is in filming all these years and, and just my own journey i've learned a lot of things to try and um self-medicate you know i don't i don't drink I, I, you know, I, I eat well, I, I, I train, I, I exercise all the time. I meditate every day. So I've learned all these practical things that gets me around reaching out to someone and saying, Hey, should we, should we talk about this? Instead? I do, I find stuff to do to help me, you know, whatever that might be. It might be a 10 day silent retreat, or I, I have lots of things in my, and I, I constantly learn and upgrade what I can do to make myself feel better. But one of those is not, 
except when I'm filming. When I'm filming, I have to see a psychiatrist in between every episode to be cleared for insurance. Yeah. So that's good times. I get to go and un- unload on them. Uh, but mostly they're sitting there looking at me going, they bled an animal over your body. So most times they're going through trauma while trying to help me. But so that's, but it's an awareness thing. I didn't really think it was a problem until mom died. And then COVID, it double whammied it for me. I, I kind of went, wow, like I really do not connect well. So I think connection has been identified as something that you're going to prioritize as being important now, which I think is great. Like, I mean, I, I think it's great personally. Like I look forward to like being involved in that, like as your friend, mm-hmm. you know, I think that would be really lovely, you know, like. And, you know, I assume I'm being involved with this plan. <laughs> the guy got the fucking first just, call about the mum. You're on my first podcast. If, I, if, yeah. I'm, if I'm not okay. in this new... So, and we've Todd's, known each other for 11 years. Yeah. If yeah. I'm not in this new Todd Sampson, we've had the fucking audition yeah. process. It's been a long audition process. You know, I mean, I hope that, you know, we can just have non-recorded friendship conversations. Mm. That that would be really... <laughs> non-recorded friendship conversations. Don't say anything too interesting or I feel like we've missed out on recording it. But yeah. like so, Halfway through the conversation, you'd be like pause yeah. do you mind yeah. if we record this now just yeah small chat only yeah just an intermittent <laughs> podcast we can do a lot of small chat and then occasionally record something but the uh, reason i bring up mom yeah. is not woe is me lots of people lose their mom it's not it's not about that it is it's just my own reflective learning about uh, connecting like uh, opening up to people and you don't have to have many but at least reaching out and if you see someone in need definitely make that effort even though your self-protection says don't do that it says you know hide this is too scary so don't don't do that so one of my uh things that the current crisis has revealed is that things that we are told are impossible are suddenly possible and you know vice versa of course but One of the things is we're constantly told that we can't give all the homeless, but we can't get homeless people off the street and give them somewhere to live. Well, it turns out we can. All we need is a incentive to do that. And it turns out you can do it really quickly and effectively. (laughs) So oops. when, when we go back to, you know, the new normal, we've got to remember that we can actually do these things. We're just choosing not to do these things. So let's design a better society because the only way it happens, I was talking to an interviewer the other day doing some Gruen press, but I was just, saying we were talking about those same things the good things about what we've learned during this time we all understand what the bad things are but what are some of the good things we could take with us when we rebuild the house and and she said i hope we remember those things and i said to her it's our responsibility to keep reminding people We, we can't rely on the idea that we, need, we can remember how good we were and how important community was and how much we missed, you know, mm. hugging people and seeing people and being in the company of people. We have to constantly remind ourselves that that is the case. So let's redesign this new world. What do we take out of this current moment back into this new world that's going to be most important? And we're at a time when depression is at its highest, when, um, you know, stress is at its highest. And this is, we're at that time where, all of these things that challenge us as individuals and society are amplified. So, and yet we will adapt, but it'll be so much easier if we connect better to each other and on some level, you know, uh, that's my view anyway. So what are we adapting to? Cause this is not, this is only the first of a series of challenges we're going to face. A lot of them around the uh, rapidly deteriorating environment. So 
like how optimistic are you about like yes we can adapt but we're going to be facing a whole bunch of things that we need to adapt to are you positive when you think about our capacity to adapt to the challenges of like climate change external to the current challenge well, it is adapt or die, really, especially with climate change. Right. You know, it's we seems to be a few people in the oh well, we're fucked anyway. Let's yeah. just drive this thing into the wall. The the, the, the premise of of uh, I spent six years doing a brain documentary series, and the premise of that is a, a science called brain plasticity, and it's it's a very simple premise, which is we all have the ability to positively correct our brain over time, regardless of your age, regardless of where you were born, regardless of your stature in life, we all have the ability to better ourselves from the brain's perspective. The other premise of that is it's the brain is highly adaptable to almost any situation, almost any, there are exceptions, but almost any situation, which is code word for that very well-known corporate uh, uh, phrase of a growth mentality mindset. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, we are so, in fact, we are so uniquely adaptable that we are so arrogant in killing the world around us that we believe mm-hmm. that will be okay as well. We'll adapt our way out. We'll of it. adapt our way out of it. But the brain itself, for us, regardless of whatever you're suffering from, whether it's, you know, if it doesn't kill you dead, and it does for some people, we have the ability to adapt. And that could be anything. That can be addiction. That can be a, a belief system you know those that believe that uh, you know climate change doesn't exist hopefully they adapt at, at some stage of their lives but i am completely optimistic about that because it's not self-help it's science like we 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 can adapt you can adapt now getting there is not easy especially for a lot of people but it's absolutely possible is it possible for everybody uh do you think that we are more likely to you know, take community into our considerations of how we adapt? Or do you think it is more likely that the rich will adapt in, and rich and privileged will adapt in a very different way no, to the I, rest I, of the yeah, people? I, I don't think we adapt equally because my mom's a good example. You know, you could argue she could adapt. She could fight her addiction on her own. Uh, and she could, she could, but she didn't. You know, she... She, you know, she does. She didn't have money or education or anything really for her to look forward to in the future, and she felt that she had arrived at her end, you know. But I think, in general, holistically, I think we can, but not equally. You know, those of privilege have more opportunity than those that don't. You know, so it's. I don't think it's an equal thing, but the potential is with everyone, even mum, even mum, if if she would have been able to uh, come more out than in potentially could have survived it as well. Uh, we're about to do a new ser- series of Gruen series 12. Oh boy. Uh, which is, you know, uh, remarkable in of itself that we would still be doing this show. I didn't think we'd get eight episodes, let alone 12 years. I so. remember the first episode and, uh, I said, uh, I asked John, so I used to go backstage because I was new to television. I'd never done any television before. And after every uh, episode, I would sort of look for some kind of affirmation, not for me as an individual, but for us as a show. And uh, I remember John Kasmer, who was not, 
who's one of the founders of the show, not great with feedback. Like he's kind of that, got that <laughs> casual Australian. It's okay. Uh, I remember he told me before the show started, he said, he was just honest. He said, Oh, you know, we'll be lucky if we get through one season. <laughs> and you know, what was weird. Every night he would say, every night you go, it's okay. It's okay. Like after the show, I go, that was, it was pretty good. It was good. And then it was only when we did Emma Thompson, when we did the rape on television and, uh, the, and it, she was just getting raped and the shot was looking at her face as she's being raped. And it, it was about trafficking of, of women. And we had 200 or so people in the audience and it went, it was as if a large vacuum sucked all everything out of, out of the, all the energy. It was dead still. And you had to lead us in and out. And it was one of those moments where I thought this, this show is worthwhile. Like I, I felt we had done something that had not been done in that way before. And we had covered a topic which was so difficult to cover. In, and we did it in a, in a graphic and sensitive way. And then I went back stage and I looked at John and I said, was it, was it good? And he said, eight. <laughs> And at that moment, I knew we had a show for the next 10 years. Uh, so it's going to be a very different show. Um, obviously, no studio audience. Uh, Russell, Which is going to be hard for you more so, than it okay, is for so us. That's, so I, I'm interested to talk about that. So, yes, obviously, I've been spending a fair amount of time talking to people and watching people's approach. And I've never done a show without a studio audience. Yeah. So Glasshouse was in front of a studio audience. I've done 18 years of television and I've always done it in front of a live studio audience. So the, the audience in some ways is my permission to like, I, my role on the show is being the voice of the audience, mm. the of the audience and for the audience asking questions that they would ask, but also asking questions that they just haven't had a week to think about, but they would ask if they had a week to think about. And that's my role, all the experts there to be experts. And my role is to be the voice of the people. So having the people there in the room with me sometimes helps me police the other things, yes. you know, like it's much easier for me to, make fun of something in advertising when there's 200 like people laughing that it will be when there's just four people who work in advertising. Well, not everyone, <laughs> not everyone works in advertising anymore, but no, no one does. <laughs> it's the best. It's the cleansing show. <laughs> but yes, it will be very different for me. I think it's but... going to be the hardest for you. I think from an audience perspective, not much change. People watching. I don't think there'll be that much change. In fact, I am so happy to see the ass end of the pan over crowd shot, which I fucking hate so much. Uh, and that kind of weird laughter going up. Like, anyway, I'll be glad when that's gone. But I think from our perspective, from the, from the panelist perspective, not much change. Because I remember when I, again, John Casimir going onto the show, uh, maybe second or third time. And he said to me, I was nervous, you know, and he said, Todd, think of it as a, an intimate conversation around a table with Will and a couple of friends and the audience is not there. That's, but for you. So if you don't know how the, the way the show, so the show gets warmed up by a, a comedian who kind of comes in and does some stuff while we're getting ready. And then you come out and you properly warm them up and also assess. You normally assess 
the battle we may face in the shop. I have to decide how hard I have to go or otherwise yeah. to get them and, to do what I need them to do. And if you if, if you think, so if you haven't been to a live show, if you've been to a live show, it's different. But if you haven't been, we go for sometimes an hour and a half for a 30-minute show. And almost all of the rest of that is, is you, is Will, is you. Go in the audience and having fun and some stand-up in there, some work, lots of stuff happens. What you see is a really edited-down version of that. So for you, I think... It is going to be tricky because it's, you know, it's like performing in front of a mirror, really, in a bizarre way. Like everyone that's in there knows you. It, it's going to be, I'm, I'm very interested by it. I, I, like to go with the theme of our conversation, I am excited by it. Part of that is that like the changes are not changes that we've made ourselves. Like the one that bothers me more than the audience is us not being all in the same studio, to be honest. Yeah, that I would me love, I would, that if I had a choice out of the two, they said you can have one back or the other, you can have the audience back or you can have everyone in the same studio. I would say, let's do it without the audience, but let's have everyone in the same studio. I would love that. I just think that intimacy of sitting around that table, having that conversation would be benefited by everybody being there in that studio. But I think the way that we'll probably do it is that four of us will be in a studio and it'll only be Russell on the screen. And I think Russell has the capacity to overcome the fact that he won't be in the yes. same studio. I and mean, it's I, edited. Yes, exactly. So that helps. But um, for me, there's another friend loss. Yes. Like, cause I, so right. in the behind the scenes, so I, I'm in a dressing room with Russell Wills by himself setting, get his mind right and getting ready to go. And, and I'm with Russell and normally most of the time I'm with Russell, he's pretty much naked. Like he takes his, <laughs> it's so weird. Like we'll be talking and he'll just take his shirt off. And I'm like, and then he, he doesn't put another one on straight away. He just continues to talk. To me with his shirt. And I'm like, okay, well this is normal. And then whatever, someone else will come in and then he'll anyway. But I, I often have conversations. It's weird with Russell because I have good conversations with Russell and, and mostly Russell is just this crazy optimist. You know, he's like, ah, it comes in. I can hear him coming. And there's so much of him that I wish I had, you know, he's got that outwards, everything's good. You know, he's like that kind of person. But I just want to caveat that by saying everything you see that we do together that happens on screen is real. So there's one thing with Russell in the back with me. And there's another thing when we're sitting out there and we're actually talking about stuff which we don't rehearse so none of that is even though i love russell dearly uh he's the person i probably love the most and agree with the least on many issues some we definitely agree on but we definitely disagree so i'll miss having him before the show i know what he's going to be like during the show but before the show i like having russell around yeah same like i mean those afternoons just kind of you know doing the the, we don't do a rehearsal rehearsal, but we do a little sort of, you know, dry run of the, n none of the conversation, but, you know, bits and pieces of the show ads that you guys need to have been able to see or, you know, know where I'm going to, you know, ask a question or throw off the back of. And so we do this little sort of very informal, no one's dressed up or gone to makeup or anything yet. Or we know sometimes, you know, some of the cast have, but I've, I've never, I'm still always in my tracksuit pants. Yeah. You know? and, and hat. Yeah. Baseball cap. Yeah. Baseball cap, tracksuit yeah. pants. Haven't had a shave yet. Yeah. That's all still to come for me at that stage. And they're fun. I always enjoy those. Yeah, like, same. you know, talk about football or something we've been watching on TV or what anyone's been up to. That that part of it will be not there quite as much. And I, I think I will miss that. But the show itself, I mean, it's. I think it's exciting after 12 years to just have something different to do. Like, but secondly, the content of the show, you know, I was talking about this in a meeting, you know, the other day and I just said, we could really do all the topics from season one mm. and we'd have 
completely different conversations because yeah. the world changed. In fact, we should. That was a good idea because we covered pretty much every industry in season one, didn't we? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, and there'll be things that we have talked about recently. Like, I mean, we talked about tourism. We talk about tourism nearly every year, but we talked about tourism comprehensively in like November last year. But all those conversations are completely irrelevant. Like, you know, the world has changed so much yeah, and tourism totally. has changed and people's and all capacity the COVID to travel stuff has changed. And the messaging and the cliches. There's and so stuff. much good yeah. stuff to talk about. So I am like less, I'm concentrating less on the things that we won't have. And, and are you nervous about more. it? At all? Like, are you kind of like, because uh, really, you're the one who has to perform. No, I'm challenged by it. I don't think nervous is the right word. I don't feel nerves or I feel like, oh, here's a problem that we need to solve. I don't necessarily know. We've got a whole bunch of ideas on what the solution will be. And I'm interested to find out which of those things is it's a solution. We might not find it episode one. We might find it episode three or four. And I'm absolutely fine with that because no one really knows what they're doing. We're all just guessing. But I think that there's going to be benefits to it. Anyway, we've got to finish up in a second. So um, there's a couple of questions. I can't remember. I didn't go back and listen to the first episode. I should have. That would be the professional thing to do. But that is not this podcast. So um, <laughs> I don't remember if I had the time machine question back then. I don't no. suspect that I did. No. So well, I have two questions then. Okay. These are the kind of two standard questions that I like to ask people. Um, firstly... I have a magic wand and I can give you any skill in the world, any skill at all. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours to be able to do it. You just now have this skill and you can interpret skill in any way that you want to interpret it. But what skill would you just love to possess? Flying. Can you make me, can, can I fly? Comes up a lot. So um, a lot of people, a lot of people want to fly. So Here's now the extension of this. Okay. okay. I have the magic wand and I grant you the power to fly. What do you do with that power? Well, you know, no, I'll take back flying. Yeah. If I could have... As soon as I ask another question, a lot of people get more skeptical about flying. <laughs> well, no, because it sounds like that's not a... You didn't mean that as a skill. Um, no, I mean it as... No, I'm very happy with flying, but I just want to know then if you had the skill to fly, no, I would how like, would you use the skill? I would fly? like instant interpretation of any language. Ah, yeah, that's a good one. That's what I would like. Yeah. I would like to to, to to be instantaneous so I could the travel to any... The capacity to understand any part the of language. The, any part of the world, and I would know that language straight away. The Douglas Adams Babelfish. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I would love that skill. Yeah, that's a good skill. If I could have a skill... I'm uh, now going to ask you a practical question about okay. flying, though, because I still want right, to ask okay. this question. You suddenly have the capacity to fly. How does that change your life? Uh, would you keep it secret? Or would you tell people that you could fly? Because oh. you are the first person now who can fly. Do you have a responsibility to share that gift with society? Because you understand what that means. You're going to be tested and you know, people will think that you have some capacity to use your you mind to help people. You mean I'll be doing television people. shows where they'll hook exactly. machines up to me and right. test me in. Uh, no, I, 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 I wouldn't think like that. Like, I, sure, I'd let people know, whatever. I, I would... <laughs> <laughs> fuck, I don't, I don't know. Like, I can fly, man. Like, shit. But I, I would want... 
You know what it is, though, now that you get me to question it, it's just another form of escapism, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I would just want to escape. It, I, that's what I'd be flying for. I wouldn't be doing like commercial okay. flights where I'm taking people on my I back. Know. I I'm would just, want to just, I'm, I'm just I would just, like right now, I would just fly, <laughs> I would fly to the Serengeti, you know, just so I could cruise over the, over the migration. Or I would go down to Antarctica and check out what's happening. I saw Todd flying and I think he's, oh yeah, he's got some shit going on. <laughs> That dude just wants to escape everything. No, uh, it's like, I have a time but, machine. I, have but a I would do, but I would yeah. do the language. I have a time machine. Yeah. Um, I can take you to any period in time, oh. in the future or in the past. It is a round trip because I need the machine. You do not need to do something for the good of humanity. You can choose to, but you know, you don't have to kill baby Hitler or any of those sort of things. Like I will send someone more qualified to go back and do that. But you have the capacity to travel forward or back in time. You can use it personally. You can go to a spot in your own life if you wanted to and change it or observe it. But it is without limitation other than that it's a round trip. Uh, oh, I don't. We don't need necessarily have a long story about this because I covered it before. But I would go back. I would go back with my mother and convince her to keep Wendy, who was raised, who she gave away when she was 15, when she fell pregnant to a man who's not my father. She gave the child away to her sister. That didn't go well. And it was definitely the biggest regret of her life. In fact, on her deathbed, before she died, she's lying in silence, looking up at the ceiling. We were in the dark in the hospital. And she said to me, it was one of the only things she said to me, she said, I've done many bad things in my life. And I said, Mom, welcome to the club because so have I. And she said, but some I really regret. And I said, what do you regret, Mom? And she said, giving Wendy away. So if I could go back, I would go back to that moment and Wendy would have been raised because that led to Mom's entire life decline. That one decision that she made as a 15-year-old child, I would go back and change that decision. I wouldn't. Ch I would try and convince her to to keep Wendy and she would have been raised as my sister and I think mum would still be alive today if uh, people want to hear the backstory to that you spoke about that very you know uh, extensively the first time that we spoke seven years ago thank you so let's not uh, have it wait another seven years no let's not. come back and we might be too old then we'll be uh, do it again uh, yeah. I'll probably still be doing this in seven years do you think you'll still be doing it in seven years well probably what else am I going to do <laughs> <laughs> um, Body Hack is still available. People should uh, watch Body Hack. Uh, where can they find that on Template? You can find it on Template. Yeah, and I think some of it's on Stan as well. The first couple of series. Yeah, we watched. Oh, I was telling you, mm. Amy, Amy and I watched an episode mm. the other night, and it, so it's on one of. The, I don't. I can't remember because yeah. we just flicked from one streaming service to the other, but it's definitely on one of the streaming services. And uh, of course, Gruen is back for ten weeks, so uh, make sure you tune into that eight thirty Wednesday nights on ABC TV or ABC iView. Uh, thank you very much, mate. See you in seven years. Bye.